Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church. In our ongoing expository study of Revelation, today we look at Jesus' promise to the believers in Philadelphia to keep them from the hour of testing. Examining this, we find ourselves in the Gospels and even in Paul's letter to the Romans, where we again see how beautifully the whole of Scripture ties together. Leading our study, here is Pastor Alex Cantaroja. There is something in store in the future for every man and every woman. We're all going to encounter, in some shape or form, our Lord and our Creator. And for this period called the hour of testing, it is something reserved for the ungodly. It's something that motivated our Father, our Heavenly Father, to send His Son to rescue us from. And I mentioned this before, when we put our faith in Christ, when we sing we're saved, and I think we can oversimplify it in saying saved from our sins because we sinned against a holy God. Yes, and that's true. Would it surprise you that he's actually saving us literally and physically from something? And it's something that the scripture uses different kind of descriptions of it, where it's the day of the Lord or the day of wrath. In this case, even the hour of testing. And what we're going to find is as we're studying this letter, the promise made to these Philadelphian believers, it's going to transcend them. And it's going to apply to believers even extending to us and to the end of the age. And that promise is for their faithfulness, they will be kept from what our Lord described as this hour of testing. So we're going to find ourselves going to Paul's gospel for more insight because the Apostle Paul was given great insight, a lens into the mysteries that are being unfolded through the preaching of the gospel entrusted to him. And he tried to share that good news in that gospel with his fellow Jews, but they resisted him and refused him. And then from there, the call to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and to the church. So we're going to find us going to that detour when we get there, But what I'm going to try to demonstrate through Scripture is how the Scripture connects to each other and it's one consistent story and theme with a landing spot. And that's no different with this hour of testing. So what we'll do is we'll read this short letter to continue to remind ourselves of what was said to this church. And then we're going to cover just verse 10 today where Jesus made this promise to keep them from this hour of testing. So let's begin our reading, shall we? We'll we'll read Revelation 3, and we'll cover verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly, hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. 
He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So for today, as I mentioned, we're going to just focus on verse 10 of this letter to the church in Philadelphia. So let's reread what that says. So our Lord says there, he goes, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. In verse 10, perseverance is hupomoni. Hupomoni means patient enduring. But this isn't just a general hupomone. People patiently endure things in life. Jesus uses the personal pronoun. He says, my hupomone. So this is speaking of a perseverance for Jesus' sake. And the hour of testing, parasmas, or the hour of trial, he says, because they have kept the word of his perseverance, he will keep them from the hour of testing or the hour of trial. And we're going to speak more on that as we go. But before we get into this hour of testing, I want us to look more at or look more into hupomone and the perseverance that is spoken of by our Lord. Because this is the reward. He's acknowledging because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I'm going to reward you for your faithfulness. And, your, and that reward includes keeping you from these, this hour of testing, this hour of trial, this hour of prosmos, that which is about to come upon the whole world. And I want us to look into more of what that perseverance is. But our Lord, at least him being quoted, he only used it once in, you know, in the Gospels. And that was in the familiar parable of the sower. We're all familiar with the parable of the sower. And in the seed that fell on good soil, he makes mention of this perseverance there. I don't want to go to Luke 8.15 for that. So when he speaks about the seed that fell on good soil, he says, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold, fa- hold it fast and bear fruit with hupomone. So it can be said, if we look at the lessons of the parable of the sower, that the seed that fell on good soil bore fruit with patient endurance. Here's another way to say it. For being a Christian. For being a Christian or bearing the name of Christ since the birth of the church could come at a great price. And if that price came in the form of persecution and even death, and you persevere for his name's sake, for bearing that name, he is promising great reward. So it can be said that these Philadelphian believers are certainly among the seed that fell on good soil when they received and heard the gospel message and believed. And if tested or experiencing a trial, did not deny him. And we've learned a lot about the great martyrs of the early church, Polycarp. We learned about Antipas that our Lord called out here. And some of the things that they went through, they're a great example. And there's many who have kept the word of Jesus' perseverance for bearing the name of Christ. What I want to make a connection here 
is this perseverance is part of the gospel message itself. So if you thought that the gospel message is just like, hey, Jesus loves you, he died for your sins by repentance and faith from him, you can have eternal life and that's it, you're giving an incomplete message. What about the words of our Lord? He's saying, well, if, if you want to follow him, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, then follow him. There is some sort of commitment and obligation on, on the believer's part. That's part, of being, that's part of his perseverance for maybe being the object of persecution for being a Christian. So what I want to do is I want to make this connection that that's in the gospel message, that by believing in Christ, it can, co- it can also come at, great, at a great cost and even your life. Are you good with that, if needed? You're like, wait a minute, wait, I, I just want Jesus to bless me and to make me prosperous and to give me, you know, his mercies and blessings in life. What are you talking about? Like, wait, something on my part, if, if, I, if I need to bear or, or come under great and severe persecution, I, I, I'm going to be expected to hold my end of the bargain too, right? It's rough. Yeah, it's, no. This aside, when you try to be pragmatic and try to come up with a formula for making decisions or people come to Christ, there's a great danger and a great disservice to the gospel itself because what's not also being communicated is that if they persecuted our Lord even to the death of the cross by his own people, are we greater than our Lord? That we might not be called or put in a position that we might have to suffer for his namesake. But now where I'm getting at is from Jesus saying, my perseverance, I'm going to go to Paul's gospel and show you that it's part of the message. Because this is what they have kept. They have kept the gospel. They've received the gospel message. They've heard it with a good and honest heart. They believed. And if as necessary, they persevered. So let's go to Paul's gospel. And I want to go to Romans 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. When we get to chapter 2 of Romans, Paul in chapter 1 in the exaltation of the gospel, what he, be, what he first does is first he brings the charge against the unbelieving Gentiles, saying that they are receiving in themselves the due, the due perversion of their punishment. And God gave them over to a depraved mind and all that stuff. You know, speaking to a Jew, yeah, to the hell with the Gentiles, these pagan nations, they will be amen, Paul. They will agree. But what he does here in this gospel, because there are those in Rome who are of his brethren, he's like, wait a minute. Jews too are under the same sin, are still under sin. Whether you have the law or don't have the law or whether you have the law. For those who don't have the law, God has given them a conscience with it bearing witness. So when they do evil, they do it with full knowledge. But what they do is they suppress the truth. They will be judged for that. You, on the other hand, fellow Jew, you have the written law, and now you are trying to live by the law? First of all, my friend, he's telling them, you too are under sin. So in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's building up the charge that Jews and Gentiles are under sin. But now we're on chapter 2. Now he's talking to the Jews here. Now let's pick it up. Therefore you, my fellow Jews, you have no excuse. 
Every one of you who passes judgment for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. See, this is the gospel message. To those who by perseverance, by hupomone, in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. Because there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, and also for the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Folks, this is the gospel message being delivered by the Apostle Paul to his fellow Jews. In verse 7, he says, by perseverance, to those who by perseverance, who by hopomone, in seeking good, seek for glory and honor and, and immortality. Let me ask us a question. Who's perseverance? Christ. So the, what I want to, make, want to make here, when Jesus says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, you know the, the gospel that was given to Paul? We say it's Paul's gospel, but who gave it to him? Who struck him on the road to Damascus and blinded him with light? Who gave him the gospel? The Lord Jesus Christ. So the hupomone in Paul's gospel given him to by Christ, and he's talking about the same perseverance, it's connected. Jesus, when he makes this statement to this church in Philadelphia, it's connecting already right there with Paul's gospel. So Revelation 3 and Romans 2 are connected. Which means when Jesus says to the Philadelphian believers, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. If we want to know more about, Lord, what do you mean by that statement? Just go to Paul's gospel for more insight. And if we want to know, about, okay, what hour of testing are you referring to, Lord? That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth to keep them from, we can go to Paul's gospel for that as well. Of course, the rest of scripture. But right now, I'm just I'm trying to at least give us some reference point. And right now, I'm sticking with Romans. So with that now, just know that this perseverance, my perseverance in Revelation 3, and the perseverance mentioned in Paul's gospel in Romans 2, is Jesus' perseverance. With that, I want us to look at Romans 2 again, and we're going to exposit it pretty briefly. I'm not going to spend too much time. I want, to, I want to exposit it just a bit. So let's reread it again. Now let's get a little more insight because Jesus is promising. He's saying, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I'm going to keep you from something. So let's look at it one more time. He goes, therefore you, my fellow Jews, have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment against the Gentiles who are not under the law, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things as the Gentiles. 
And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, O my fellow Jew, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So right off the bat here, in Paul's gospel, he mentions it twice. He mentions the judgment of God and escaping the judgment of God in verses 2 and 3. So his gospel includes a judgment of God. So let's look further at what Paul has to say on those judgments. And he's still speaking to his fellow Jews in verse 5. He goes, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation, apocalypsis, of the righteous judgment of God. So Paul's gospel, which is tied to this mention of perseverance for those who seek to do good, honor, and seek immortality, eternal life, it also speaks of there is a day of wrath, an apocalypsis of the righteous judgment of God. And we've covered this in the, in the very beginning of our study. This book that we're studying, the book of Revelation, Apocalypsis, it's the unveiling. Christ is veiled, the Father is veiled, heaven is veiled. Right now, the Father is on the throne, the Lord Jesus is at his right hand. We have 24 elders. We have the four living creatures. We have the angelic hosts. They're all there. It's all veiled. But even the book of Revelation, there's going to be an unveiling of Jesus Christ, an uncovering. And remember, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That even those who killed our Lord are going to see him. Remember when he was charged before the Sanhedrin? And they were falsely accusing him because now they want to sentence him to death. And the high priest says, I adjourn you by the living God to tell us if you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what did he say? I am. And he goes, and you will see the son of man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. So that high priest and the Sanhedrin there, they're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ coming in the power and the clouds and power of great glory. That's the unveiling to them. They will be, it'll be unveiled to them, and as we'll see, there's others. Here he's saying, in the day of wrath and the unveiling, God's wrath is veiled right now. His wrath that is going to be poured out on this earth is veiled right now. But there is a day of wrath when that will be uncovered, and the righteous judgments of God will follow. So what we have so far is this hour of testing in Revelation 3 and this day of wrath in Romans 2, they're connected. I just want us to get that. Our Lord's talking about an hour of testing. There is this judgment of God. Paul mentions even twice early on in this chapter. And this judgment is connected with the day of wrath and revelation that's going to be uncovered at a certain time. So this day of wrath this hour of testing is further described as the apocalypsis of the righteous judgment of God. So when the day of wrath comes and it is no longer veiled but now unleashed, that is the righteous judgment of God being administered. It's coming, but it's not there yet. And Jesus is promising these believers that's coming, but because of your faithfulness, you're not going to be part of that. 
So it's that, that's a truth that this day of wrath and judgment is currently veiled to mankind, but will be revealed. It'll be uncovered on a specific day at a specific hour in the future. So in God's timeline, let's just say from Adam to the end of the age, God has set aside a day of wrath, and he's also set aside a specific hour to unveil this, and it's going to come to a surprise to many. When we look at even the example of Noah, maybe those who were around and saw him building the ark kind of had an idea of what he was at least trying to do. But do you think there was also a lot there that didn't know who Noah was? That didn't see this crazy man in the middle of nowhere building this ark? But were they spared from the flood? So it shouldn't be no surprise to us when this is unveiled and it's happening, it's going to come, it's going to come on people like, unexpectedly. But now we start thinking, wait, Lord, would you do that? Are we going to put God to the stand? Do you want to put God to question on what he's doing and why he's doing what he's doing? See how we, we can elevate and put ourselves in the place of God when we shouldn't. So let's continue on Paul's gospel. So are, are we starting to make this connection? This hour of testing is associated with this day of wrath and the, and the righteous judgment of God which is veiled, but will be unveiled at a certain time in the future. So on this day of wrath, let's, look, let's continue on. This is continue on Paul's gospel. He says, on this day of wrath, you know, during this hour of testing, God is the one in verse 6. He says, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Who will render? It's in the future. Let me ask us a rhetorical question. Has, the, has God... Rendered to each person according to his deeds yet? No. So it's even ahead of us. But there's going to be a day of wrath, this hour of testing, when God will render to each person according to his deeds. That's prophecy. So which person of the Trinity is going to render out, render to each person according to his deeds? Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ. Let's use his own words. This is precisely what our Lord said at the end of Revelation. He says, behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. When will Jesus do this? Well, let me ask, has Jesus brought his reward yet? Has he rendered to each man according to what he's done yet? My question is, when will he do this? At the end of the age. And that was part of the disciples' questions. When will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? When are you going to reign on earth as the prophets have foretold and and spoken of? When are you going to rule and reign the nations with with a rod of iron? When are you going to build a kingdom for your father and establish your throne in Jerusalem? When are you going to do that? At the end of the age. The age as we know it. Now, before that kingdom, this earth is going to get a facelift, and then he will usher in his millennial kingdom. So he's going to do this. He's going to render to every man according to what he has done at the end of the age on a day described as a day of wrath, and on a certain hour of testing, God is set aside for judgment. Paul elaborates on this. Let's continue on in our Romans 2 passage. He says, concerning that day of wrath and hour of testing, 
he says there's going to be two groups. He says to those who by perseverance, there it is, the hupomone, in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. He goes, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. He goes, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. He goes, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So here's what I'm going to try to do. Paul, in his gospel, he calls out two groups. And I want to put those groups side by side based on what his gospel tells us about these two groups. And hopefully this helps. So let's look at group number one. This is what's characteristic of this group. They don't pass judgment. They pretty much, they're not doing what the Judaizers are doing. Other, but, so they don't pass judgment. They don't condemn others. They don't take lightly the kindness and tolerance and patience of God. They don't have a stubborn and unrepentant heart. They persevere, hupomone, in doing good. And they seek for glory and honor and immortality. Here's the outcome for this group. They will escape the judgment of God. They're not storing up wrath in the day of wrath. They're not going to experience tribulation and distress. They will instead experience glory and honor and peace, and they will receive eternal life. But this other group, starting with the Jews with us, with who was because of their stubbornness and unrepentant heart, these Judaizers, the ones who are united with those who killed our Lord and had him condemned to death. This is descriptive of this other group because they pass judgment, they condemn others, they think little of the kindness and tolerance and patience of God, they continue to have a stubborn and, and unrepentant heart, they're selfishly ambitious, they don't obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness. Here's what's going to happen to this group. They will not escape the judgment of God. They are storing up wrath in the day of wrath. They will experience tribulation and distress. They will not experience glory, honor, and peace. They will receive wrath and indignation. So we kind of see this. This is in Paul's gospel. I'm just trying to put it nicely, but next to each other. So Jews and Greeks will be divided into these two groups. I'm going to make this connection. We went from Romans 3, I mean, uh, Revelation 3, Romans 2. I want to go to John 5. Because Jesus speaks of a resurrection of two groups. So let's read what our Lord said there. We'll pick it up in verse 25. So in context, the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's the context here. And now he's speaking to his enemies. He goes, truly, truly, I say to you, and these are the Jews seeking to kill Jesus. He goes, an hour is coming. And now is. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, and even so he gave to the Son to also have life in himself. And he, the Father, gave him, the Son, authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. He goes, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So in this passage, when Jesus says, an hour is coming and now is, and now is in the Greek, the rendering of the Greek, it implies what is immediately to take place. It's kind of a simultaneous action. 
He says, an hour is coming, and when that hour comes, this simultaneous action, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So Jesus spoke of an hour. He speaks of an hour here in Revelation 3. An hour of testing. And here in John 5, Jesus is also speaking of an hour when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live, will be brought to life. What I want us to connect here, what Jesus is saying to this church in Philadelphia, of course it's tied to the Scripture, all of Scripture. And we're now making that connection to Paul's Gospel in Romans 2, and now here to the Gospel of John when Jesus makes mention of an hour. There's two groups spoken of in John 5. If you look at the Scripture as telling one cohesive story, we can deduce that the hour of testing, the day of wrath, the hour of two resurrections, the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment, they're all connected with one another. As I said, this Scripture is telling us one consistent story. When Jesus speaks, simultaneously, there will be a resurrection of two groups. One to a resurrection of life and another one to a resurrection of judgment. And I mentioned this before, if we think that people who did not die in Christ, who are being held in Hades right now, are just raised to be thrown into the lake of fire, ultimately, there's something before that. They'll be raised to a resurrection of judgment to experience the day of wrath for the ungodly. You're like, wait, isn't hell enough? How is he going to recompense for every deed? Hades is just a holding cell right now because Hades itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. And I deduced from that study, I believe there's an angel named Hades. And this place in which this angel had authority over that place is, is associated with that place. But Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. It's just a temporary holding cell. In that hour, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out of the tombs to a resurrection of life or a resurrection of judgment. Here they're speaking of a mass resurrection right here. But these two groups will have two different outcomes. I can tell you what I was guilty of because I held a certain view. I made that resurrection fit somewhere else so it doesn't interrupt with my view. But just looking at the Greek here and how it's constructed... It's simultaneous action. When he makes this call, those who are in the tombs hear his voice and have two different fates. I do want to make this one conjecture here. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm conti- remember, um, this is why I put out those rules of engagement. So if anyone wants to debate me with Scripture, we have to debate and play with the same rules. You can't make your own rules. I can't make my own rules. Let's agree that we believe that these are the principles that have been modeled by the authors of Scripture. And I think it would be, it would be, we would, it would be hard for us to try to say that what we've set before, oh no, that's not, that's not, that wasn't modeled by the authors. I'm convinced that these principles, it's been keeping me in line. But that being said, one of them, um, I want to talk about tombs. He says, those who are in the tombs. Now here, I'll say this. I was saying, okay, all who died before Adam up to that point, I put everyone there. I go, wait a minute. Remember our ROEs, you can't add or take away. I shall not take Scripture out of context. I'm, you know, I will interpret it with a literal fulfillment, but here also I can't impose my personal bias. It said tombs. Tombs, uh, I'm not, not going to even try to say that in the Greek, but it means 
an actual physical tomb or a place, a monument that was set up to lay the dead. You know what? When this Greek word was used, it spoke of a tomb or a monument 100% of the time. So then I go, wait a minute. Well, what if I was cremated and I don't have a tomb? What if I was thrown into the sea? And then, a, and then other scriptures start to strike me like, wait a minute. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it? It's like, oh, okay. Let me, hold on. Let me not add or take away. If we get there, I'm going to get there. But for now, I got to stay by the rules that I even set up before us. Because tombs was used 100% of the time to speak of an actual physical tomb, you know, when Jesus was laid in the tomb, this is the same Greek word. When a stone was rolled away, it's the same Greek word. I'm going to resist expanding it to those outside of the tombs at this point. I'm going to hold off. Because he says, those who are in the tombs, we hear my voice. Well, we know at least it's them, but I'm going to resist for now to throw everyone else who's been cremated or whatever in there. I'm not going to do that yet. Those who are part of this resurrection of life will be kept from the hour of testing, kept from the day of wrath, kept from God's judgment when it is revealed and retribution is made to mankind. And there is this other group who will be part of the resurrection of judgment. That group will face the hour of testing, the day of wrath, when God's judgment is revealed to mankind. So now what I want to do is let's go back to those two groups that was in Paul's gospel. So here, this one group, this resurrection group is the resurrection of life. Are they going to experience the hour of testing? No. This is a no. This group, and we know that the Judaizers definitely are under this group, and because of their stubbornness and unrepentant heart, they are storing up for themselves the day of wrath. So they're going to be raised as part of this resurrection of judgment because they're storing up for themselves wrath. You're like, there's more? Yes, there's more. You know, I've taught Romans cover to cover, verse by verse. I didn't, even, you know, I didn't recognize this until now. That his gospel gave us insight into the order of judgments and blessing. And I want to show that to us. So let's go back to when Paul says this. Makes, he makes this statement. He goes, let's pick it up in verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5. He goes, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are soaring up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. He goes, there will be, there is he, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So let me ask us a question. In Paul's gospel, when he talks about the Greeks, who are they? Gentiles. They were under Roman rule, under the Greek language. So if you weren't a Jew, you were considered, generally speaking, Greek-speaking Gentiles. Sometimes they'll call them Greeks, barbarians. But they're also called Gentiles in Paul's gospel. So let's, let's put that. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress of every man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentiles. A little more clear. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first 
but also to the Gentiles, for there is no partiality with God. So if the Jews are first, then the Gentiles are what? Or, or, he who is first is? Ah. If the Jews are first, the Gentiles are last. Next. The Jews are first. There, is, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentiles last. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles last, for there's no partiality with God. Okay? Follow me? Now, the Jews are first in something, and the Gentiles are last in something. What do you think that something is? I kind of give us the answer. It's in the verse. What's, that's, what's something that's going to be experienced by Jews and Greeks? Tribulation and distress. Okay, got that. That something is tribulation and distress, but also glory, honor, and peace. The Jews are going to be first to experience something. The Gentiles are last. My next question is, in what order? If there will be tribulation and distress for every small, a soul of man who does evil, who's first? The Jews. And then the Gentiles. These two groups are going to experience tribulation and distress and glory and honor and peace. And my question to us is, well, the script, Paul tells us the Jew is going to be first to experience tribulation and distress. But you know what? You know what the Jews are going to experience first too? Glory, glory and honor and peace. They're first in both. So with that, here. Here's a truth in Paul's gospel. The unbelieving Jews will experience tribulation and distress first and before the unbelieving Gentiles. Right? Paul says tribulation and distress will be experienced by every soul of man to the Jew first and then the Gentiles last. Meaning, and this is why we went through those different tribulations. Jerusalem's tribulation that was spoken of by the prophet Daniel and this abomination of desolation that's going to occur. That's part of Jerusalem's tribulation. That's going to come before the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world. Get that. When Jesus is saying, I'm going to keep you from this hour of trial to this Philadelphian believers, the Gentiles aren't going to experience that until after Jerusalem's tribulation because the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowl visions flows in sequence, and it harmonizes. Meaning, when we're studying the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, guess what's going to happen before the global tribulation? Jerusalem's tribulation, because the Jew is going to experience it first. Paul's gospel declares this. However, the Jews are also first to receive glory and honor and peace, Right? The believing Jews will experience glory and honor and peace first before the believing Gentiles, before us. Meaning, following Jerusalem's tribulation, the believing Jews will experience blessings, glory, and honor and peace before the believing Gentiles do and before that hour of trial. And lo and behold, there is a special group that is sealed before the seventh trumpet and before the hour of trial. Anyone want to guess who that group is? The 144,000 sealed Jews. It's like, oh, 
Lo and behold, this is precisely how the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls envision flow and sequence. So just, just stay with me. The Jews are going to get punished first, and then the world. And the Jews are going to experience the blessings first, and then the rest. And that's exactly how these seven seals, trumpets, and bowls plays itself out. And that group that's going to experience the glory and honor and peace, and it was given to them a song that no one knows besides them, and they're going to be taken to Mount Zion, they experienced glory and honor and peace before us. Didn't they? That's what Paul's gospel declares. So back to verse 10. So when Jesus says to the Philadelphian believers, he goes, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, he goes, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So what we did was we went to Paul's gospel for more insight. We went to John 5, to the teaching of our Lord there about these two resurrection groups for more insight. And now we learn that these two groups will experience two very different things. One group will experience, among other things, tribulation and distress, and another group will experience glory, honor, and peace. Now the Philadelphian believers, because of their faithfulness, they're not going to experience tribulation and distress, but rather glory, honor, and peace. Meaning this, when these Philadelphian believers are raised, it is not to experience tribulation and distress, but rather glory, honor, and peace after the believing Jews, which is at least minimally, the 144,000 sealed from 12,000 from each tribe. So now in closing, what I want to do now, I want to look at it in context and then contrast it. And then from there, transcends it, right? It, the truth that applies here and the promise that applies here and what the Spirit says to the churches is not limited to them. It goes even to us. So here's in context. Does it surprise you that the Philadelphian believers, as, as far as the two groups that we've covered, would be part of the, the group, group one, who, and because of their perseverance, Jesus will set before them an open door, the kingdom of God will be open to them, and no one can shut them out. And the time will come when the unbelieving Jews in group two will bow down at their feet and make them know that Jesus loved them. For their faithfulness, they will be rewarded and kept from the hour of trial. So this is, at least in context. Now let's look at the contrast in context. The synagogue of Satan, on the other hand, the unbelieving Jews, the Judaizers, they're definitely part of that second group that we've covered in Paul's gospel. Because of their stubbornness and unrepentant heart, Jesus will shut the door of the kingdom to them, and they will not be permitted to enter. Jesus will make them bow down at the Philadelphian believers' feet and confess that Jesus is Lord and love them. For their unfaithfulness, they will experience tribulation and distress and thrown into the hour of trial, the day of wrath when the judgment of God is revealed to them and to the world. But do we notice, are we noticing in this letter, it's, prophecies, it's prophecy of the end time, including the judgments. And the synagogue of Satan, and when we look at Paul's gospel for more insight, they're going to be raised. And when Paul says you are storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, they are quite literally storing up for themselves wrath in the day of wrath. They're going to experience a day of wrath. 
And it's not just judgment and thrown into hell. Not yet. They will experience tribulation and distress. So that's in context. And in contrasting the Philadelphian believers and the synagogue of Satan. These are the two groups that were mentioned here. And remember, remember my disclaimer, okay? I don't know all the details yet. I'm just speaking here generally, okay? Faithful believers is part of the first group. And all faithful believers of all time, because of our perseverance, Jesus will set before us an open door. The kingdom of God will be open to us, and no one can shut us out. And Jesus will make the unbelieving Jews bow down at the feet of the redeemed and make them know that Jesus loved us. And for our faithfulness, we will be rewarded and we will be part of a resurrection of life and we will be saved from the hour of trial that is coming upon the unbelieving world. And the contrast of that universal truth and the unbelieving Jews and those who dwell on the earth are part of group two. And because of their stubbornness and unrepentant heart, Jesus will shut the door of the kingdom of God to them and they will not be permitted to enter. I'm telling you, okay, I'm going to kind of go a little conjecture here. You know, when we studied he who opens and no one will shut and he shuts and no one opens. And remember we went to the teachings of our Lord when he went from town to town and he was teaching the gospel and he's saying, you will say, didn't you teach in our streets and didn't we eat in your presence? And he goes, and you will say, and I started, we started to get this picture like, wow, the, the kingdom is going to be here and there's going to be the dogs outside, what the scripture talks about. And he talks about wide is the gate, wide is the road that leads to destruction. He goes, but narrow is the door, narrow is the gate that leads to life and few that find it. And it started, it started to hit me a little bit. You remember when we studied Hades and we did a little systematic theology on Hades? What did one of the characteristics? Hades had gates. And they said, the gates of Hades. Remember when Jesus said to Peter, um, who do you say that I am? And he goes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he goes, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And assuredly, I say to you that upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We get this picture of people outside the kingdom to be received into this wide road, this wide gate, where many will find themselves in. And this narrow door, this narrow gate, they're going to try to enter, but they can't. They won't even be allowed to. All that is to say this. We're starting to get this imagery, and this is where the sheep and the goats judgment comes into play. Away from me into the eternal fire prepared for Satan and his angels. Because when I was hungry and thirsty and in prison and so forth, you didn't do these things to me. They're going to be received into the gates of Hades. Right before the kingdom, the sheep are going to be allowed to enter into the kingdom. So Hades is going to be outside of the kingdom. And Hades will still not be, it'll still exist during the millennia. And only until after the millennium, and after Satan is loose for a time, and after the great war of Armageddon, after that, and when we get to ultimately, when Satan is finally judged, and thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet were, and then the great white throne judgment comes up. Then it says, Hades gave up the dead that were in it. And then if their name wasn't found in the, name, in the Lamb's book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. So part of this second group, when they will be shut out of the kingdom, 
where I'm finding they're going to be thrown into Hades. And this universal truth for the second group, because of their unfaithfulness, the unbelieving world will be raised to resurrection of judgment, will experience tribulation and distress, and the hour of trial, the day of wrath, when the judgment of God is revealed to render to each man according to what he has done, whether good or evil. So, with some other kind of closing comments here. Let's kind of sum up here. I know that was a lot. What is the hour of testing? The hour of testing is God's judgment to the unbelieving world. Paul's gospel charged that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin and apart from believing the gospel will be raised to experience God's wrath judgments. God's judgment begins with the house of Israel, Jerusalem's tribulation, then God's judgment will extend to the rest of the Gentiles in the global tribulation. And God's rescuing will begin with the house of Israel, the 144,000, and then the rest of the believers who died in Christ at the rapture, and that's the seventh trumpet. When is this hour of testing? When is it? If we use John 5 as a reference point, when Jesus says an hour is coming when the dead in tombs will rise, we know that that hour of testing for those resurrection will be after the seventh trumpet or when the seventh trumpet is blown. Let me say that again. When the dead will rise, that resurrection of life and judgment is going to occur when the seventh trumpet is blown. And we're going to find when we read the seventh trumpet, there's going to be one with a sickle, and the angel's going to tell him, go reap the earth, and there will be this reaping. And then yet, he says, gather the clusters to, to experience the winepress of the fury of God. That's the resurrection of judgment. That was in Paul's gospel. That was worn throughout the, gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. And that will be experienced by those who are part of that resurrection of judgment. Here's where it gets a little confusing. Because there's testing as far as Jerusalem's tribulation. When we studied the book of Daniel, we know that there is an end of God's indignation. There's going to come a time when God is done punishing his people. And that's part, and that would expand all the way through the 70th week of Daniel. Where it gets confusing is there's testing on Jerusalem's part. Because remember, it starts with the Jew first. And then it's going to expand beyond them to calamities and cataclysmic events that extends beyond them to the end of the world. So Jerusalem's tribulation and the global tribulation, it, ex- it spans from the seven seals to the seventh trumpet. I can see why there's confusion. But then following the seventh trumpet, there's going to be seven bull wrath judgments. So we have this testing of his people. God is finishing his punishment upon them, as was prophesied by Daniel. And we have this global tribulation that's going to be experienced by those by the entire world. But then when we get to the seventh trumpet, when there is this reaping, there's still yet another testing that happens after there. And sometimes I think we blur the testing, of the judgments of God. They're all judgments of God. It's from Jerusalem to the global tribulation, even until the seven bull wrath judgments. It's all testing and I think when, when Jesus, when we read, when our Lord says, well, he will keep us from the hour of testing, we're not distinguishing them and where we would fall in that and where the people of Israel would fall. But this is all part of the revelation of the judgment of God to the world.
Would it surprise you that what I'm proclaiming to you is in our Lord's Prayer? Let's end with the Lord's Prayer, shall we? When his disciples asked him, our Lord, how then, how are we to pray? He goes, pray then in this way. I want to read Matthew's. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Here I have it highlighted for us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now I want to draw our attention to verse 13 here. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Temptation or trial, the hour of trial, same Greek word, parasmos. Which is to say, what trial do you think is being spoken of here in our Lord's Prayer? When you're like, Lord, lead us not into parosmos, into this trial. What trial are you talking about? That you're even praying. The hour of testing. That will happen after the resurrection. Lord, deliver us not into that and deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our very Lord's Prayer speaks of a testing and we're even asking to be kept from that testing. And if you think, oh, this testing is just judgment. No. It's part of the judgment, yes. When you're talking about, when you're thinking about judgment as far as just being acquitted or convicted, I'm not talking about that. And our prayer is not talking about lead us from not being convicted in God's court. That's not what is being talked about here. And lead us not into parasmos. Lead us. You know, we were also saying, Lord, because we have endured your perseverance when we receive the gospel. We believe the gospel and we believe the warnings because we are faithful. And, be, and just as you've promised the Philadelphian believers for their faithfulness, they'll be kept from that. It's also in our prayer. Lord, deliver us from that. Saying the same thing. We need, that's what I'm saying. You know, we talk about eschatology. Oh, it's not, um, it's not essential. Yeah, it's not essential for salvation, of course. But it's essential for growth. Something's got to land somewhere. And it'll ultimately find its fulfillment in the return of Christ and surrounding the people and the land of Israel that will start there, spread out to the world, and then end there. So our hour of trial is even mentioned in our Lord's Prayer. When we get to the bold judgments, that's what we're asking to be kept from. Because many of us have already died Right, so let's just say for these first century believers, lead us not into a temptation or trial. Well, we know that the next time they're going to be raised, they're either going to go to a resurrection of life or a resurrection of judgment. And our prayer is, Lord, keep us from that resurrection. Amen. Thank you so much for listening today to Truth Matters Church. Next time, we'll continue looking at this fascinating letter to Philadelphia and take a careful look at our promised crown. If you've enjoyed this expository study, consider joining us in person or online every Friday night. Our small group study is interactive and followed by a Q&A session, so we all have a chance to better digest the text. You can find out more at truthmatterschurch.org. And if you're blessed by the teachings you're hearing, please consider supporting Truth Matters Church with a small financial donation. You can give online, again, at truthmatterschurch.org contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.